We are in Acts chapter 17 this morning. We're moving from Paul and Silas and the others, uh, Timothy and Luke being in Philippi to now moving to Thessalonica. And I want to encourage you uh, this afternoon, as Pastor John did last Sunday, to uh, spend some time this afternoon or the week ahead to, to read Paul's letter uh, to the Thessalonians, his letters to the Thessalonians. Um, I think uh, reading this in Acts will help you to get a better sense of uh, Paul's ministry there and the church there in Thessalonica. Before we read God's holy and errant, infallible word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer, asking him to bless uh, the reading and hearing of his word. Almighty and most merciful Father, We humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it out, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty 60 or a hundred fold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed in the name of Jesus Christ we pray amen we will be reading Acts 17 verses 1 through 15 hear the word of the Lord it is written now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were per persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, 
And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Having been run out of Philippi, Paul and his companions now moved on to Thessalonica, which was a good hundred-mile journey by way of the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. Luke seems to indicate that this trip was split up with stops in Amphipolis and Apollonia, which divided up this journey into three 30 or so mile sections. This amounted to about a day's travel by horseback. We don't know if Paul and his companions were traveling by horseback, and Luke does not tell us how many days it actually took them to move between Philippi and Thessalonica, or what, if any, ministry was done in these other cities. These were clearly details of little significance for Luke's purposes in Acts. What is significant, however, was Thessalonica being Paul's next destination. Thessalonica was an important city strategically for the continued spread of the gospel. It was a fairly large city, actually the largest city in Macedonia, and it served as the capital of the whole province of Macedonia. It was the most prosperous city there, being a port city. Much of the produce of Macedonia left from Thessalonica, and many of the items imported into Macedonia passed through it. Obviously, then, planting a church in this city would be helpful to later reach the larger region with the gospel message. And I think it's important to note that we begin to see here Paul's strategic focus on cities. We find him focusing on places like Athens next, which was an intellectual center, and then Corinth, which was a commercial center, and then Ephesus, which was a political center. And he understood that if strong churches were planted in these cities, that they would then impact the surrounding areas and even spread throughout whole nations. But we need to note here not just Paul's strategy in where the gospel was being proclaimed, but also how he proclaimed the gospel. Luke gives us a few key action words here related to Paul's evangelistic efforts. Look at the verbs. It's always important to look at the verbs. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 17, we are told, and Paul went in, that's referring to the synagogue, which was always his first stop if there was one present, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath day, he reasoned. Here's our first key word. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, there's our second, and proving, there's our third, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Christ, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul didn't merely come and preach a sermon or even a few sermons and then leave. He did, without doubt, come proclaiming the gospel with a simplicity and clarity 
But Paul came and reasoned and explained and proved the scriptures. Paul spent time carefully expositing the scriptures with the people, revealing to them how Jesus fulfilled all of the scriptures, showing them the evidence that this man Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, allowing people to have dialogue with him, to ask questions and to inquire of him how these things were so. Paul wanted the people to see how it was God's plan that Jesus would suffer and die and be raised on the third day to conquer sin and defeat death. So he wasn't encouraging any sort of uncritical acceptance of the gospel. Paul wanted the people to examine the scriptures and wrestle with God's word themselves. And he wanted to engage with them in this process. We also see the same sort of thing when he moves on to Berea in verse 10. We're told that the Jews there receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Luke is presenting us with these details to show us how Paul treated people with respect and dignity as he proclaimed the gospel to them. He didn't come beating them over the head with the gospel, but rather approached the ministry of the word with great patience and care, taking time to to lead the people through his whole presentation of the gospel in order that people's hearts would truly be persuaded by the truth of the gospel. He wasn't trying to coerce anybody. He, He wasn't trying to make some sort of quick play to their emotions He gave them room to move and to think about what he was presenting. And he wasn't afraid to take on people's questions and objections because he had confidence in the gospel's ability to stand up to any challenges. And we see payoff here. Clearly, God bless this method of sharing with these people the good news of Jesus Christ. We're told in verse 4 that of those in Thessalonica, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And Paul had similar success in Berea, where we are told many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So the people there in Thessalonica and Berea embraced Jesus as the suffering and risen Messiah through Paul's presentation of the gospel. But it wasn't just the Jews who came to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There were also Greeks who placed faith in Jesus. So perhaps we should pay careful attention to Paul's methods here and seek to imitate them in our own gospel evangelism and apologetics. But notice what else happened in these places. Paul was willing to spend time with people in order to present the gospel, which proved to be an effective witness to win many to Jesus Christ. But this also caused a major disruption in Thessalonica. Now, remember what we saw in Philippi. We saw how the gospel had created an economic disruption. 
when Paul cast the demon from a slave girl, resulting in her owners losing her as a source of income for themselves. The gospel had brought healing and freedom for her, but it had created outrage from those who were using her for their own gain. And so they seized Paul and Silas and drugged them before the magistrates and declared that Paul and Silas were disturbing our city by advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. In other words, they accused them of throwing the city into an uproar and of illegally proselytizing. The real issue, though, was their financial loss. The gospel's power and presence in their city had resulted in their income stream drying up, a stream that kept these individuals profiting by keeping this girl in misery. The gospel has a way of disrupting immoral means of making income. Here in Thessalonica, it is an economic disruption that the gospel causes so much as political and social disruption. At least this is what is claimed by those who drug Jason and those who were with him at his house before the local authorities. Jason and the others served as a substitute for Paul and his companions as their accusers declared that these Christians were turning the world upside down and were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This is a very serious charge, as it more than implied that these were revolutionaries who were committing high treason. These events were probably happening right after Claudius expelled Jews from Rome following some riots, by the way. Certainly, the authorities in Thessalonica would have wanted to prevent a repetition of such problems. By God's good providence, though, Jason was allowed to get out of custody on bail, apparently with the agreement that he would make sure Paul and his companions left Thessalonica. But we should ask ourselves why this accusation of social and political disruption was made in the first place. Was Paul preaching politics from the pulpit? Was he encouraging civil disobedience? Was he preaching social issues and encouraging activism? Is that what Paul was doing? Of course not. Of course not. Paul was simply proclaiming the gospel. He was preaching that Jesus Christ had come fulfilling the scriptures. He was preaching that Jesus Christ had died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to the disciples before he ascended into heaven where he reigns in power as Lord over all. And perhaps if he was obeying the Great Commission, then he was also teaching all that Jesus had commanded. Love God. Love your neighbors as yourselves. Repent of your sin. Practice spiritual disciplines. 
forgive others, act compassionately, etc. So did Paul come into these cities with a goal of disturbing the peace? His proclamation wasn't aimed at disrupting the social order. And so these charges that are made against Paul were false. And yet, and yet there was some truth to them. The gospel, as it did in Philippi, has once again proved to be a disruptive force in the world. You see, the proclamation of the gospel in these places was transforming people's lives in noticeable and significant ways. It was causing them to change old habits, to have new loves shaped. And they began to put away old ways of doing things to turn away from the ways of the world the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1.6 that the result of the Thessalonians placing faith in Jesus Christ on account of his proclamation of the gospel there was that they began to live it out following the example of Paul and the others with him. Paul states, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And Paul goes on to say this about believers there in Thessalonica. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The believers in Thessalonica, in other words, began to live the faith. And this is what Paul tells us when he says in verse 4 that the people there were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. That word join literally means that they cast their lot in with Paul and Silas. They began identifying with them. They repented of the idols of their culture. They placed their hope in Jesus Christ and began living holy lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. They began themselves sharing with others this message of salvation in Jesus Christ, which had been preached to them. And all of this is the issue. It didn't mean that Jason or the other Thessalonian Christians were out sticking Jesus for king signs in their yards. They they weren't going into the marketplace and getting into arguments with people about hot button issues. But it did mean that those who they used to associate with had lost influence and power over their lives. And that the lives of these new believers now stood as a witness against them and how they lived. 
So by their very lives, they were disturbing, as the great Charles Spurgeon said, the sinful constitution of a kingdom and the evil practices of false priests. They were unsettling those who refused to bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what happens when the gospel begins to transform lives. And what happens in a community if all of a sudden you have people bucking the status quo, saying things like, no, actually, I'm not planning on attending that social gathering. I just can't participate in things like that any longer. Or, I'm really sorry, but we've decided that we can't shop there anymore or give money to that business or organization. Or, I apologize, but I'm going to have to turn down that invitation to go see that movie. I just can't support the message it's sending. Or, what? well, we've decided to put little Johnny at this other school next year because we're concerned about what he's being taught. And we really want him to have a Christian worldview. Or, I don't mean to disappoint you, but my family doesn't do organized sports on Sunday. These seemingly small things actually create major disruption of the social economic, and political order. And then the accusations come. These Christians are turning the world upside down. That's what Paul and Silas and the Christians in Thessalonica got accused of. Why? Because they're pulling their children out of the school system? Because they're refusing to participate in the children's sports complex? Because they aren't supporting the local economy? Because they're finding alternative means of education? Doesn't this seem like an exaggeration? They aren't just troublemakers. They're turning the world upside down. Come on now. This seems like a pretty outlandish claim, but that's how it feels when a few people begin to go against the flow of culture. And here's the reality. Here's the reality. The world is upside down. This is the world marred by sin. This is the world groaning under the effects of the fall. Everything is upside down. And when God's truth breaks in and people get turned right side up to everyone else, they seem to be upside down. That's their perspective. And the very presence of these believers turned right side up seems to be turning the world upside down. And it doesn't take Christians becoming activists in the public square for Christian causes. Christians don't have to stand outside the Supreme Court shouting that abortion is murder or that marriage can only be between one man and one woman. All it takes is for a few Christians living lives humbly submitted to Jesus Christ in proclaiming him as Savior and Lord. Think about it. Thessalonica was a city which was estimated to have a population of 200,000 people during that time. 
Now, I don't have any idea how many people came to faith in Jesus Christ during Paul's time there. Was it 20 or 30? A hundred? A few hundred? Uh, My guess is that it wasn't a significant number in relation to the total population, but their very presence, however small it was, created a huge felt effect in the economic systems, in the political systems, in the social systems. Their very presence seemed to be turning the world upside down. It's really a remarkable thing to consider, and we should consider it. The gospel, you see, has significant disruptive power when it takes root in a community. Not because believers intend to be disruptive, not because that is their aim, but because by their very presence, an alternative to going with the cultural flow is presented. The Christian faith lived out presents a counterculture in which godly character and values are encouraged and promoted. It presents a counterculture where objective truth is not only acknowledged but submitted to. And these things aren't only seen as strange, they're seen as threatening and dangerous. They aren't just viewed as benign backwardness. They are seen as malignant upside-downness. And it's threatening because people are getting wealthy off unjust and deceitful business practices. It's threatening because people are finding power in promoting the status quo and leading people in their own version of truth. It's threatening because people are comfortable in just going with the flow. It's threatening because the gospel presents us with Jesus as Lord and with a choice of humbly submitting ourselves to him and being saved or pridefully rebelling and being met with the wrath of God. And we don't like facing the reality that we are not Lord over our own lives. We don't like people challenging the way we are living. We don't like people standing in the way of our pursuit for pleasure. We don't like people interfering with our streams of money and power and popularity, even if the only thing they're doing is giving witness to a different way of life. Perhaps we've experienced this displeasure with the presence of the gospel in our own culture, If not in decades past, then certainly here of late. There has been an increasing sentiment that Christians pose a threat to our society and to American democracy. There's been a growing demand for Christians to keep their religious beliefs out of the public square. We're told that that religion is fine as long as we keep it private. And by that is meant that people don't even want to know that you are a Christian. They don't want to even see a hint of it in your living, which is really nonsensical, isn't it? If someone is truly a person of faith, and they will live according to their faith, both in private and in public. It will shape the way that they live in all aspects of their living. But notice here how violent the reaction is to this Christian presence. We are told that those who are being threatened by the presence of the gospel and by believers who were submitting their lives to Jesus Christ went out into the marketplace and created a mob and set the city in an uproar. Does this sound familiar to you? 
Does it sound familiar that the same people who are accusing others of turning the world upside down are the ones starting the riots? The one accusing others of being troublemakers are, in fact, the ones who are creating the trouble. The ones accusing others of disrupting peace are the ones setting the cities on fire. The evil one always convinces those who have been employed to do his work that the ends will justify the means. Nothing is off limits as long as the Christians can be silenced and run out of town, even if it means doing the very thing you're accusing someone else of doing. It makes no difference. The Christians are a threat. So we see the Jews going to the marketplace to recruit some unsavory characters. Today they would get on social media and find those people who are unemployed, angry at the world, and just looking to destroy something. And these folks who were stirring up this trouble didn't merely want the Christians out of their city. They didn't want them in any of the nearby cities either. So these Jews who had attacked the young Christian community in Thessalonica find out that Paul and Silas and Timothy are in nearby Berea where they have escaped under the cover of darkness and they go there to run them off from there as well. Paul wasn't trying to cause offense. He wasn't intentionally trying to cause disruption. He didn't go looking for that fight. He tells us as much. He laments in his letter to the Thessalonians that he's been torn away from them after even previously suffering and being insulted in Philippi. And as heartbreaking as it was to leave these young believers, we see in his letter to the Thessalonians his willingness to leave these cities and move on to help bring calm back to the city. But we're faced with the reality in these chapters of Acts that the gospel has disruptive power in the world. So the question is, how will we handle its disruptive power? When we're met with the world's resistance to the gospel, will it come as a shock to us as though it's unusual and abnormal? Will it be a source of frustration for us? Will it cause us to become angry? Will it cause us to, to lose faith that God is with us and will not forsake us? Will it cause us to capitulate to the world? I think these are all perhaps natural responses to a violent reaction by the world against the gospel, but they're not Christian responses. These are not the responses of the Christians in Thessalonica. We know from Paul's letter that the church in Thessalonica became a strong church even in the midst of the opposition that was faced there. Perhaps a more Christian response would be to offer a calm, winsome, patient, and steadfast witness. Perhaps it would be courageous and clever as we see in the Berean believers who worked to sneak Paul out of their city before things deteriorated any further there. The Bible, though, actually has a lot to say about persecution and how the believer in Christ is to respond to it. But dearly beloved, maybe we ought to be asking ourselves why the world isn't more disrupted by the gospel than it is. Is the only thing offensive about the Christian faith these days our views on human sexuality? 
on marriage, on gender, on abortion? And should the only ones who are offended by Christianity be those who hold politically liberal views? Is that it? So perhaps then we aren't doing such a good job of living the Christian faith. So here's something additional to consider. I don't think that this passage is just about how the gospel causes disruption out in the world. This might be the immediate thing we think about, especially in our context. We can pretty easily see how the unbelieving world rejects the truth claims made by the gospel and reacts to them, at least on some issues. But I fear that we perhaps don't consider how disruptive the gospel is supposed to be in our own lives. I think that these chapters and acts are again and again showing us not only the disruption caused outside the Christian community, but they are also showing us how the gospel has first disrupted the lives of those who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and placed faith in him. This is, in fact, what the world is reacting to. What's made clear here is that the gospel isn't just some set of abstract ideas, ideas that have no consequence in the here and now. This isn't just about the promise of something that is to come. On the contrary, the gospel is of tremendous consequence for how life is to be lived in this present moment, and that's the rub. It's the Thessalonians being persuaded by the gospel and coming into fellowship with Paul and Silas and throwing in their lives with them and imitating them. It's the Bereans being open to God's word and having an eagerness to receive it and to examine it daily in a way that their lives are transformed by its power. And these, by the way, were not just poor, ignorant people on the fringes of society, as many like to assert, were those who the early church attracted. These were noble people. They were people of high standing. These were people who had something to lose by identifying with Jesus Christ. And yet their lives were turned upside down or right side up, depending on your perspective. So before the gospel ever disrupts the world outside the church, it disrupts the lives of those inside the church. So here is a pressing question for us. Has the gospel disrupted your life? If we find ourselves in perfect alignment with everything that's happening around us, then we have our answer. Our lives should not look like the world around us. These chapters in Acts remind us that our response to the gospel should impact every aspect of our lives. It should be challenging us to consider how we live our lives in ways that are different from the patterns of the world, economically, socially, politically. Our lives are meant to be brought into conformity to Jesus and his kingdom, and the ethics of Jesus' kingdom are not the ethics of this worldly kingdom in which we find ourselves. So this means that if our lives look like those of our unbelieving neighbors, then we haven't allowed the gospel to disrupt us as it should. The gospel's influence on our lives should disrupt the way we view money and the things we consume. The gospel's influence should disrupt our business practices and the honesty with which we make a living. The gospel's influence should cause us to evaluate our social circles and who we choose to associate ourselves with. 
The gospel's influence should disrupt our politics. The gospel's influence should disrupt how we parent our children and the things that we allow them to participate in and how they are educated. The gospel's influence should disrupt how we use our leisure time and the things we do for entertainment. The list goes on and on and on. Again, our commitments, our allegiances, our relationships, everything should be conformed to the gospel. But let me encourage you with this. How many people, how many people are being disrupted by the gospel, not in a violent opposition to it, but in a holy submission to it? How many of those people does it take to disrupt an entire city? How many does it take to disrupt an entire region or an entire nation? Apparently, not that many. It's through our faithfulness and living out the gospel that the gospel's disruptive power in the world is unleashed. And for some, it will be repulsive and upsetting, but it's also the means by which God reveals the goodness of his kingdom and blesses the world through his people by demonstrating through them there is another way a way of true peace, a way of love and justice and mercy and forgiveness. So just as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians, let me encourage you in this way as we conclude. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your word would disrupt us this day. Lord, that we would be unsettled by your word in a way that would cause us to reevaluate our commitments, our allegiances, our relationships, Lord, and that we would grow in greater conformity to your word. Lord, we pray that our lives would be lived to the praise of your glory, Lord, and that this would disrupt the evil patterns of this world. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I encourage you to now stand and let us together affirm the faith that we have received using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the 